Welcome to the Evolving Digital Self Podcast, where we explore the conscious use of technology. Listen in to hear thought leaders and other guests discuss the human relationship with technology and learning to thrive in the digital era. Hosted by the author of the international best-selling digital self-mastery series and being at work, Dr. Heidi Forbes Usta. Welcome back to the Evolving Digital Self Podcast. I'm very excited to introduce to you Nir Ayal today. He is the author of Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products, and he's got another new one coming out soon, but we'll let him tell you more about what he's working on. Welcome, Nir. Thank you so much. It's great to be here, Heidi. So this whole season is really about digital well-being and ethics of using behavioral science in technology and all these different things, and this is totally your sweet spot, too. So I would love to hear sort of how you got into this space and what does this all mean to you? Oh, I have a lot to say in this area. <laughs> I mean, I so I got started in this field uh, back when the problem on everyone's mind in in this industry, at least, was not what do we do when people overuse our products. The big problem when I got started was that nobody used our products. Right? <laughs> that companies, tech companies, were desperate to figure out how to make their products user friendly and make them intuitive and and uh, you know you figure out how they could expand the the reach of their products by making technology less complicated, right? Technology used to have this reputation of being really cumbersome and difficult to use. And so when I got started in this space researching around how do you build products to be engaging, that was the problem we were trying to solve. And so when I when I started my research in this field and 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 uh, applied some of these techniques in various companies I've worked with, that was always the challenge. And so it's amazing to see from the time I got started in this field around 2012 till now how we've gotten so good at using these techniques that now we have some of these unintended consequences like overuse. Uh, so along the way, I mean, I've always been thinking about uh, these these questions around ethics and personal responsibility and company responsibility and how do we manage distraction, et cetera. And so I, I went from writing Hooked, which was my first book, but it was really around how do we take these secrets of companies like Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and WhatsApp and Slack, these companies that are so good at changing user behavior how can we learn from these best of breed companies that already know the deeper psychology around user behavior so that we can build healthy habits, right? That the companies that I work with are the ones that are building products to help people, right? To help them exercise more and uh, save money or be more productive at work. That's really where I think the potential of habit forming products comes into play is not, you know, I didn't write the book for Facebook and Google. They already know these techniques and have for quite some time. Now, my, my, my most recent work is, is my next book is called Indistractable, which is all about you know how do we manage distraction? Uh, it's become a hot topic, of course, because of technology and how technology can impact our day to day habits and sometimes cause us to overuse technology. But really, what I discovered is that it's a much bigger topic around distraction at large. So I kind of got sucked into answering this question that really plagued me for quite some time, which is why don't people do what they say we're going to do, right? We, we are honest with others. You know, we all consider ourselves to be honest people. We wouldn't lie to someone if we say we're going to do something. We don't, you know, we, we know that that's uncharacteristic of ourselves to uh, not follow through. And yet, if you're anything like I was, you probably lie to yourself all the time, right? I, I'm going to go to the gym, but you don't. You're going to eat healthfully, but you don't. You're going to work on that big project that you promised you're going to do, but you end up getting sucked into Slack or email or whatever else. So that was really the core of this book. The key question, 
how do we get ourselves to do what we say we're going to do? How do we become indistractable? And if you can become indistractable, I'd argue that that's almost like a superpower, especially in this day and age where we have so many potential distractions. If you can just focus and do what you say you're going to do, you can be your best self. I love that that whole piece of focus and indistractable or whatever context you're going to use it in is so key. I, I mean, I love that sort of segue of coming in from designing things that that change behaviors for good. But if you don't, you know, it's one thing to change the behavior; it's another thing to actually be more conscious about you know making a commitment and and keeping that focus. Really, mm-hmm. really nice. So. You've been doing some teaching as well, and and you've got. I met you actually. You had done this great conference called Habit, where you had pulled together all these really interesting speakers. Congratulations for that wonderful event. Where have you seen this this space going? And and are people more engaged in the conversation, or is it still a sidebar? Well, I think companies have figured, so there's really, you know, two sides of the discussion. And of course they're interconnected. One is, you know, how do we build habit forming products to help people live better lives? And then also how do we put technology in its place as users to make sure that we don't overuse and that it doesn't harm us, uh, that we can make sure that, uh, you, you know, we don't, we don't go overboard with these potential distractions at times. So I think from the company front, you know, it's definitely become something that companies are thinking about today because, so much of a company's value is predicated upon their ability to bring people back. Wall Street loves reoccurring revenue models. The kind of companies that can generate habits are the ones that are more valuable. Uh, forming a habit with a consumer is a moat, right? It's, it, it creates defensibility. It uh, increases customer lifetime value. I mean, there's benefit after benefit to building the kind of product that becomes a habit. And in fact, I would argue that it's more important than ever because what we've seen as technology has shrunk in form factor, as we've gone from desktops to laptops to mobile devices like our phones to now wearable devices and now most recently these audio uh, interfaces like the Amazon Echo, you know, what we've seen is that the amount of real estate to trigger people with what's called an external trigger, some kind of notification, a ping, a ding, a ring, something on your screen that tells you what to do next, that has become actually more difficult, right? Because there's just less real estate on a screen to send you a message to do something. So what that means is if you can't create a customer habit, your product may as well not exist, right? So if you think about, you know, if, if you're not on the home screen of someone's phone, then you're not going to be part of their lives unless they form a habit. If you build an Amazon Echo skill and the user can't remember to ask for your product, ask for your skill, well, you might as well not exist. They're not going to use it. So as the interface shrank and disappeared, habits became even more important for business success. So I've seen nothing but increased interest. And, and by and large, you know, w- with very few exceptions, most companies are using these techniques for good. Right? They know that in order for, to build the kind of product that people want to keep using, they have to benefit the user. Right? You can't manipulate people to their own detriment. You know, people are not stupid. They figure out when a product harms them. So what these companies are doing is figure out ways to help people do what they want them to do. They, the user themselves want to do. And so that's really my mission is, is not to get people to do things they don't want to do. That's just bad business, let alone unethical. My intention and, and my clients' intentions are really to help people do things they want to do, but for lack of good product design, they don't do. 
The question I often get asked is, okay, there's all this behavior science about how we can do, create good behaviors and and get people more engaged and get them focused. It's getting more clear as to how that process works. But how do we make sure that humans are doing this? Because it's humans behind the design. It's humans that are creating these companies and these products. If, If these tools get in the wrong hands, how do we make sure that that these these habit creating things are for good rather than for yeah. evil. I mean, that's the question people keep asking me and I don't have a really good answer because what I keep saying is basically, you know, humans are humans and you can't necessarily there's always going to be people that are good and people that have bad intentions. That's not the piece that I can necessarily change, but yeah. how do you tackle that when people ask you? Yeah. So I, I've thought about this quite a bit uh, ever since the publication of my book, even before the publication of book, my book, there's actually a section in Hooked that's titled The Morality of Manipulation that gives kind of a framework for the product maker to, to, to ask themselves these two fundamental questions before they use these techniques. That if someone cares about building a product ethically and using these techniques for good, there are two questions that they should ask themselves. Number one, is the product materially improving people's lives, right? That's the first question. And that's, that's very nice. I don't think it's good enough, though. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's one more question you need to ask. And that additional question is, am I the user? Mm-hmm. And so if you ask yourself these two questions, what I'm making you do is to break the first rule of drug dealing. Heidi, do you know the first rule of drug dealing? Uh, no. <laughs> Never get high on your own supply. Ah, okay. <laughs> That's the first rule of drug dealing. Never get high on your own supply. And so what I'm doing is by giving this two-part test of, is this materially improving people's lives? And am I the user? I am making people break the first rule of drug dealing, meaning if there are any deleterious effects to overusing the product, guess what? You'll be the first to know about it. Now, this is a test, this, what I call the manipulation matrix, that makers can use on themselves, so to speak, to ask yourself, hey, should I apply these techniques? Am I, am I using my precious time on earth to do something good, to use these techniques ethically? Not only if you pass those two, uh, th- those two questions, if you answer in the affirmative to those two questions, not only are you on the ethical side of using these techniques, but I would also argue that you're on the good side of, of good business practices that you're much more likely to succeed in your business when you are making something that A, really benefits people's lives over the long term, and B, something that you yourself would use because that's the hardest part of product design. The most Mm -hmm. difficult part of building a, a great product or service is understanding your user. And so when you yourself are the user, you have an incredible leg up over your competition. It's very difficult to know what your customer wants. A great hack is to be the customer yourself. And if you look at the history of, of many of these world-changing companies, you know almost all of them were started as a pet project for the founder. Right? Mm-hmm. So that's, that's one ethical test. Now, after writing the book, one of the things that, that bothered me is that the, the, this test that I just gave, this morality of manipulation test, is really about the maker asking themselves this question of when should I apply these techniques ethically. But then there was this problem of what happens when you're, you're in a team and someone on your team, let's say a, a boss or somebody wants to use a tactic that you don't agree with, a specific tactic, not just the overall product, but a specific tactic. 
What do you do as a product designer on a team uh, in, a, in a business context to raise your hand and say, oh, I'm not sure if this is a great idea. What do you do? It used to be that the, the mantra repeated around Silicon Valley was what Google gave us, this mantra of don't be evil. Mm-hmm. And uh, even Google doesn't use that anymore because it's useless, right? <laughs> what, what is evil? It's, it's a very subjective metric. How do you know what evil is? As we all know, you know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions that uh, what we think is going to be fine turns out, you know, in the context of a business uh, situation where there's profit to be made, uh, sometimes our, our people forget about those, uh, those ethical implications. So I wanted a new test. So I looked around, I talked to a lot of ethicists. One of the, the metrics that people tend to use a lot is the golden rule, right? Mm-hmm. Do unto others what you would have them do unto you. And I, I think that's also a terrible metric because we, uh, what does it matter what you want done to you? What matters is what the user wants done to themselves. Well, then another thing that ethicists told me was, well, as long as you have disclosure, right? If we just tell people what we're going to do, then that's enough, right? As long as they know, well, they, you know, eyes wide open, they'll, they'll make good ethical choices. And I think that's also a bad rule because we know what happens when we tell people too much, right? They read those terms. You see those terms of service. It's a joke to think anybody actually reads those terms of service. And you can put whatever you want inside of them because you've covered your ass. The lawyers say it's okay. But of course, nobody reads them. So that's also not a good ethical standard. So here's the ethical standard that I propose. And that is using what I call the regret test. The regret test says that using one of these behavioral design techniques has to pass this test of people not regretting what they did. Mm -hmm. It's very simple. So it's not the golden rule of do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's asking this, do unto others as they would want done to themselves. Okay, that is the regret test. And the beautiful thing about the regret test is that it is very practical. Mm-hmm. So if you see a business practice that you're not 100% comfortable with, you can raise your hand in that business context and say, hey, boss, you know, I'm not sure about this one. People might regret doing the behavior that we've designed for them to do. Why don't we test it, right? We have been testing user interfaces for decades. We know how to do that. You bring in 10 people into a room, you show them the interface, and you see if the interface you've designed is usable right? Do they understand what to do next? Mm -hmm. So we put them in a room, we build a prototype, we get them to start clicking, and then we tell them what just happened. And we ask them this simple question, would you do what you just did knowing everything that I as the designer know, right? Let me give you a very practical example of a company that doesn't pass the regret test. And this this is not a new tech company. This is a very old company, the Wall Street Journal. So I used to subscribe to the Wall Street Journal. And they make it incredibly easy to subscribe. You log in, you give them your credit card information, and boom, you start getting the paper at your door. Try and cancel the Wall Street Journal. And I imagine this is very similar to the New York Times or any other paper. It is awful. It's called the Roach Motel. Easy to come in, but nobody ever gets out. You can't cancel online. You have to call an 800 number during the hours of 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. You get put on hold. You get talk to you know a million times by five different people trying to convince you not to cancel. If I had known how difficult it would be to cancel, I would have never started the subscription in the first place. I regret ever doing business with that paper. Mm. 
And so that is a is a, is a is a use case of how when we say, hey, you know, should we make it this difficult to cancel? Would the user regret doing business with us? And if the answer is yes, people would regret that, we shouldn't do it. And so that's a very simple test that will take care of the vast majority of these potential ethical implications. Not, not all of them, right? There are always unintended consequences to massive technological innovation. You know, Paul Varillo said, when you invent the ship, you also invent the shipwreck, mm-hmm. right? So it's not that it's going to take care of every potential problem that's created by your product, but it prevents the foreseeable problems, the ones you should have caught through this simple test of bringing in 10 people into a room, showing them the product interface, getting them to take this regret test and seeing whether they would still take the the intended behavior, knowing everything that you as the designer would know. I love that. And I think that really just, it makes it very clear and concise as to that process. And and when I work with clients, it's very much the the same way talking about sort of it's not that golden rule. It's, you know, making sure that you understand your user and how they want to be, you know, right. they, they want the process and the, the experience to be and, and the outcome to be. And often that gets mis, misinterpreted. And I think it's, it's super important. It's a good business to do it that way. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's very important here to remember that, you know, designing behavior is great, right? We love our behavior to be designed. That's called user-friendliness, right? That's called usability. We want products to be easy to use. Uh, So it's not the tactic. I think some of the the problems that some critics have have pointed out recently are completely misplaced. For example, they'll, they'll target a specific tactic. You know, I'll call out Tristan Harris by name. He tells everybody how terrible Snapchat is for creating streaks, you know, Mm -hmm. this behavioral technique, this completion mechanic of kids, you know, they want to communicate with each other every day. They want to create a streak. And he says it's a streak that's the problem. That's psychological manipulation. But it's not the technique because the same exact technique that's used on Snapchat is also used on Duolingo to help people continue learning language. So it's not the technique. It's does the user regret having used that technique? Absolutely. And I think that regret test sounds, I mean, it's just, it's beautiful. I I, I love that analogy. (laughs) It took me like three years to come up with it. I'm glad you appreciate it. No, I really do. I really do. And actually in my, in my new book that I'm working on in digital well-being and ethics, part of that is helping identify different tests that you can use. And I'm definitely going to refer to that one. But I think, you you know, different types of guidelines, because there are no clear guidelines right now. And so it's sort of the Wild West. And, you know, we've, we've learned some of the tips and tools to get people active and engaged, but we haven't really given it sort of the the guidelines to make sure that you have sort of safety parameters and that you're taking into consideration how it's going to have implications on on health and well-being or how it's going to have, how it can potentially have unintended consequences around uh, behavior and your business. If, for example, your example of the Wall Street Journal, it's like, well, you're just trying to get people to stay engaged. Well, instead, you end up with an angry customer who's just desperate to get rid of you and is going to, you know, as we all know, exactly, as we all know, negative news travels much faster and much wider than positive. 
So, yeah. And and that's why there's also not, there shouldn't be an adversarial relationship. I think that a lot of the conversation today is, well, do you want to be pro-business or anti-business? No, no, that's the wrong dichotomy. Mm -hmm. Being ethical is pro-business. If you want to keep your customers over the long term, people are not idiots. They don't keep buying and interacting with products that harm them. That's ridiculous. And so, you know, you can fool somebody once, but they're not going to continue to do business with you if the product doesn't serve them. Absolutely. So that was a great example with the Wall Street Journal. Have you seen any other that have really nailed it on the positive side? Oh, using these techniques for good? Yeah. Oh, countless examples. I mean, if you, you know, just some of the companies that I've invested in or worked with, just off the top of my head, Kahoot is a company that just went public, a Norwegian company that's the largest educational software platform in the world. They're building these, uh, making a very engaging product to get people to, or get kids engaged in the classroom. I'm proud to be an investor in them. I've invested in them several years ago. I just talked to the founders of a company called Fitbod, uh, which uses the hook model. They, they bought my book a few years ago and they decided to build the product based on the hooked model I describe in my book. Cool. And it's, it's an app to help people exercise more in the gym. And I happened to be a user and I reached out to them. I said, I don't know if this is a coincidence or not, but you have nailed the hook. Did you intend to use it? And they said, actually, yeah, we did. We read your book. <laughs> uh, and I, I just found that I built a habit around the product and I loved it so much that I reached out to them. Uh, one of my clients, there's a company called Paga, which is uh, a Nigerian company that's serving millions of unbanked people in Nigeria. Uh, helping them form new habits around saving money for the first time in their life, <laughs> without you know, by, by changing their their habits for good. They're bringing you know millions of people the the benefits of being able to participate in the modern economy through these new uh, purchasing habits through you know by becoming banked finally. Uh, I mean, the list goes on and on. Seven Cups is a company that uh, uh, does online psychotherapy. I mean, you know, the, the the problem is that we only think of the handful of companies that are so good at changing behavior that sometimes people overdo it. Mm-hmm. But that's not the real problem. The real problem is not that a few companies like Facebook and Twitter and Slack and WhatsApp or whatever, that these companies uh, suck us in. The real problem is that far too many products suck. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? The real opportunity out there is that, you know, if you think about interacting with your local government services or small businesses or, oh my God, enterprise software, these products are awful. They're not sticky at all. They need to be more Facebook-like, more YouTube-like so that people actually can use them. And that's really where my heart and soul are in terms of helping people form healthy habits through these technologies. I love that. And, And bringing that back to your new book and sort of getting people really into focusing to get the outcome that they desire and, and making sure they're not not getting distracted by the noise. And and that's a, a lot of the work that I do is helping sort of decrease the noise too. It's We're so consumed by the noise that it's really hard to get at what's really important. And, uh, you know, part of it, I think that's where you see like the, the Maria Kondo and all these other different sort of physical practices of just clearing everything out and only keeping the things that give you joy or mm-hmm. making sure you you purge but in that process to try to get focus are we eliminating some of the good i think that's a question that i struggle a little bit with it's like you you know in these massive purges which mm-hmm. i encourage my clients to do on a regular basis of mm-hmm. sort of what i refer to as spring cleaning sometimes you sort of miss some of that good stuff yeah. because they haven't mastered how to make sure that they stand out from the noise. 
Yeah. Yeah. So with Indistractable, you know, I, I started from this place. I think most people start from uh, when it comes to, oh my gosh, I'm so distracted these days. I can't concentrate on anything. It's constantly with the Twitter and with the news headlines and with whatever Trump is tweeting. I mean, I, I can't get anything done. And so uh, I started from what I thought was the problem, which was the technology. And I mm-hmm. think that every single book that I read on this problem always points the finger at the technology. So I said, well, all these smart people say the technology is the problem. That must be the problem. I'll cut out all the technology. And I, you know, I, I kind of pointed the finger at myself thinking, you know, originally I was going to call my book Unhooked because I kind of felt bad about writing Hooked. And so I, I went on a, this digital detox. I did everything the experts say you're supposed to do. Digital minimalism. I, I uh, you know, turned off all my social media and I wasn't going to use it anymore. And then I got a feature phone with no apps on it. And something really interesting happened. I sat down to start doing my work. I, you know, I write for a living. That's, that's my job. And then I turned around. I noticed, oh my gosh, look, I've got all these books next to me. I, you know, I've been meaning to read that one. And oh, you know what? I should probably fold some laundry. And hmm, you know, I've been meaning to call my parents. I should probably call them. And what I found was, is that distraction starts from within. Mm -hmm. It always starts from within. And if we keep blaming the distraction, the thing that we think is distracting us for causing the problem, we will never get to the heart of the issue, which is everything we do, all human behavior is done for one reason. And that is to modulate your mood. It's called the homeostatic response. All behavior used to be that we believed in the Freud theory of the pleasure principle, that all human behavior is motivated by the desire to seek pleasure, avoid pain. Turns out that's not true. Neurologically speaking, everything we do is for one reason, and that's to avoid discomfort, to escape discomfort, right? So if you go into a room and it's hot, you take off your coat. When you go outside, it's cold, you put the coat back on. If you're hungry, you feel hunger pangs and you eat. When you're stuffed, that doesn't feel good and you stop eating. Psychologically, the same thing goes, uh, that when we're feeling lonely, we check Facebook. When we're uncertain, we Google. When we're bored, we look at YouTube, stock prices, sports scores, the news. So fundamentally, if we are going to tackle distraction, we have to understand what are the internal triggers, these uncomfortable emotional states that we have to cater to first and foremost, or we will always be distracted by something, as all generations always have 2,500 years ago, Socrates and Plato debated the nature of acrasia. I mean, they were talking Mm. about distraction 2,500 years ago, and it's nothing new. Every generation has the radio, the television set, the, I mean, for God's sakes, people were talking about how terrible the invention of the novel was because it would get (laughs) people so distracted and it would melt their brains. And it's the exact same conversation we have now. So digital minimalism is bullshit. Mm -hmm. Getting rid of your technology, thinking that's going to solve the problem is just stupid. It doesn't work. What works is figuring out what's going on inside of me. That's the first step. The second step is to make time for traction. You know, the opposite of distraction is traction. Mm -hmm. So distraction is doing what you intend to do. Distraction is the opposite. Anything that takes you off track from what you intended to do. But here's the thing. You can't call something a distraction unless you know what it's distracting you from. I hear people complaining about how they can't get everything done. And my first question to them is, hey, look, I'm really sorry. Can I see your calendar? Can I see what you plan to do today? And they take out their calendars you know, from their phone. They open their, their, their uh, phone. They open their calendar app. And nine times out of 10, it's blank. 
Like literally 10% of the population keeps a calendar. So how the hell are you going to tell me you're distracted when you didn't even plan your day? How do you know what you were distracted from? You had no plans to get distracted from. So you can't call something a distraction until you know what you are distracted from. And that means that in this day and age, if you don't plan your day, somebody else will. Down to the damn minute. Your calendar needs to be time box where you plan every minute of your day. Now, I want people to plan time for mindfulness, time to meditate, time for a walk, time to do nothing, but have that time time box on your calendar because you have no right to say you got distracted if you didn't know what you were distracted from. That's step two. Step three is to hack back the external triggers. So only about two thirds of people with a smartphone ever change their notification settings. <laughs> let me let that sink in for a second. You're telling me that the technology is so distracting, it's hijacking your brain, something that is irresistible and that you cannot control, and you haven't taken five minutes to change your notification settings? Ridiculous. It's very simple to do. There's lots of ways we can do it. I would argue the biggest problem is not necessarily with our technology, it's with our environments. Now, when you look at the open office floor plan, that accounts for way more distraction. Your coworker stopping by and saying, hey, Bill, I just need to talk to you for a second. That accounts for way more distraction than anything on your device. So you got to hack back those external triggers on your phone and also hack back those external triggers in other environments. Of course, your desktop and your physical space to let people know that you are not to be distracted right now, that you've got to tune out and hack back those external triggers. And then finally, the last step of the four. So we did, first step is manage the internal triggers. Step two is make time for traction. Step three is hack back external triggers. And step four is to prevent distraction with pacts. So what we can do here is use technology against itself. The, the beauty of the free market we live in, it's not perfect, but what it gave us over the past few years is that when people started to complain about digital distraction, thousands of, of uh, entrepreneurs out there decided to make products to help us limit distraction. We just need to use them. Mm. Many of these things are built into our devices today. So there are thousands of apps and services that can help us block out distraction by taking a pact. For example, this morning, I needed to get some writing done. It's the hardest uh, thing I do when it comes to a distraction perspective is to sit down and write. Very easy to get distracted. So what I do every morning when I write is I take out my phone and I use this app called Forest. And Forest, as soon as you open it, there's a little virtual tree and you set how much time you want to do focused work for. And when you hit the little button, your virtual tree is planted. Now, if you pick up your phone and do anything with it, that little virtual tree dies, okay? Little stupid virtual tree, who cares? Mm -hmm. <laughs> but it's enough of a reminder that, no, 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 I made a promise with myself. I made a pact. I used what's called a pre-commitment device to lock myself in to do what I wanted to do. And this is free, by the way. It doesn't cost a penny. And so we can use these pacts in multiple different ways. I describe this throughout the book. You know, what I'm giving you here is a 30,000-foot overview. Yeah. But by using these basic four techniques of managing internal triggers, scheduling time for traction, making time for traction, hacking back the external triggers, and preventing distraction with packs, this is it. This is the magic formula to make sure that we can manage distraction and become indistractable. 
I love that. And, and particularly that last piece, just it, it, holding yourself accountable. And But uh, that forest app sounds brilliant because I've tried that one where you've got the, you know, so you do everything in 20, 20 minute intervals and you take a break mm-hmm. and you get up and move around. But it's easy to have the squirrel, you know, sort of, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, wait, yeah. I'll just and check. It, it's <laughs> the tip of the iceberg. I'm giving you, you know, the, the 30,000 foot view, but I, I'm, there's, there's so many tools out there. There's many that I use that, you know, I, I really was, was, I was feeling horrible because I couldn't manage distraction. It took me a long time to figure it out. And I tried so many things. I experimented for over five years to figure out what would work. And uh, so there's a lot more to it, but that's kind of the tip of the iceberg. There's, there's a lot more to explore. I love it. And I can't wait to read the new book. I loved your first book. So I'm sure the second Thank one you. will be brilliant or there, there may be others in the pipeline. Who knows? <laughs> but really great stuff. And uh, I want to make sure that our listeners can find you and find your stuff because mm-hmm. there's so much more to near as we know. And uh, I want them to be able to find you. Are you still doing the Habit Summit? So I'm taking a break from the Habit Summit for 2019. We may bring it back in 2020. The reason I'm not doing it in 2019 is that I really want to focus on the launch of Indistractable, which will be out in the fall. And so that's taking up the majority of my time now to get everything in place for for the big launch. Gotcha. Well, it's all about focus. So thank you for taking that time to focus. You're going to come out with a great uh, tool for all of us to get undistractable. And thank you for all the work that you're doing. And can you just uh, tell our listeners a little bit more about where to find you and, you know, what kinds of things if they want to reach out to you to get involved? And uh, yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah. So my website is nearandfar.com, but near is spelled like my first name. It's spelled N-I-R and far.com. So near and far.com. And my first book is called hooked how to build habit forming products. And my next book, which will be released fall of 2019. That book was called indistractable. Awesome. Well, so we look forward to seeing all of that. And thank you so much today for sharing your wisdom and your wonderfulness. It's really nice to see <laughs> you. you. So I mean, I haven't seen pleasure. you for a couple of years, so it's really nice to see you. And thank you for sharing your time and your energy. And thank you, Digital Selfers, for joining us today. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any of the great upcoming episodes. Until then, bye-bye for now. Thank you for joining us for the Evolving Digital Self. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app now so that you don't miss a single episode. While you're at it, please give us a rating and a review and join the digital self-mastery movement to create more conscious use of technology by sharing it and telling your friends. Want to see where you fit on the digital self-spectrum and how it might be impacting your business and relationships? Get your free copy of Digital Self-Mastery today by clicking on the link in the show notes. 